0: Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. To we hope you enjoy the sermon. What we've been doing the last couple of weeks and we're finishing this week is doing taking a three-week look on work uh, and kind of a biblical vision of work. And as we talk about it tonight, here's what I would encourage you to do, is to not limit what I'm talking about and what we're talking about simply to schoolwork or the vocation that you get compensated for, whatever that ends up being or maybe currently is. Um, Those things are certainly work, but work involves a lot more than that. Work involves most of what we do with our waking time. Um, Work involves how you choose to take care of your body. Work involves eating. Work involves taking care of the physical spaces you live in. Work involves your social life. All of those things. I want you to think about work in very broad definition um, uh, and not simply, though certainly, um, your schoolwork or your job. So what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, three different passages. One from Genesis, and this is from the creation account, where we get this story of God resting from his work. Then we're going to read from the Ten Commandments, where God gives his moral structure for the world, and he says actually embedded in the moral structure of human flourishing is called rest. It's actually a moral imperative. Um, And then thirdly, a brief comment from Paul in his letter to to the church at Colossae when he talks about how they should go about working. So I'll read those, then we're going to consider them together. So this is from Genesis 2. Thus the heavens of the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. From Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, or any livestock, or even the sojourner within your gates, that your male servant, and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you used to be a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out of there. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, therefore the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. Lastly, from Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Pray with me. Fathers, we consider your vision for work. Um, there's a lot of hope Uh, a lot of mystery. Uh, We have a lot of feelings uh, and fears and all kinds of things about work. We need you to teach us about how to engage it in a way that actually gives us fullness and peace. Uh, Please let us find peace in you. Teach us, Father God. your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in the 1920s and 30s, There's a Lithuanian psychologist, and I'm going to try to pronounce her name, but I'm going to get it wrong, but that's okay, because this is a Grace thing here at RUF, Bluma Zygarnik. Um, I read about her today, because a friend of me told about this uh, term called the Zygarnik effect, and what she studied um, in the 20s and 30s is she studied how we psychologically relate to unfinished work. And uh, her findings led to the term the Zygarnik effect. And the way that one writer summarized the Zygarn- Zygarnik effect is this the ability for incomplete tasks to dominate our attention. Does anybody identify with that? The ability for incomplete tasks to dominate our attention. Have you experienced this? Um, do what? You activated OK Google. That's amazing. Uh, Somehow I should be able to work that in. Like rest Google, give it a rest. Um, So you've probably experienced this. I certainly experienced this um, at night when you're trying to go to bed. your mind is racing and you can't go to sleep because you think of all the stuff you have to do that's not yet done, right? That's one way we experience it uh, acutely. You're just churning, just churning, just churning, and it's actually taking sleep from us in that moment. Um, But also, this this phenomenon applies to more than simply that, right? We're churning all the time because it's not just the work that we have to get done. We're churning about like our body and our weight and our diet, right? I like... There have been moments in my life where I'm like, I'm so close to my ideal weight. So close, so close. Never gotten there, right? None of us have ever gotten there. If you think you've gotten there, we can't stand you. Don't tell us that you're content. Um, But, right, there's a churning there. Uh, If you're a Christian, there's a churning about being Christian enough. Like, I want to get better at reading my Bible or memorizing Scripture or praying. There's this churning, like, I'm not quite there. I'm still not quite there. I'm still not quite there, right? Right? Maybe it's relating to your peers, finding a friend group, whatever it is. There's a churning there, right? Friends are not quite right. My social situation is not quite right. There's a churning there, right? The uncompleted task. Um, You know, every, every... when I think about getting ready for lessons on Tuesday night, there's always a churning there. It's never quite complete. It's never quite complete. I always come in with unfinished thoughts. Um, I've even heard people say this. Maybe this is you. This is not a particular weakness of mine. You think, oh, he's really proud, arrogant. Just wait to what I say. I've heard people say, like, I really need to watch Breaking Bad. I've actually maybe this is you where you're actually like I need to do a better job of keeping up with the relevant television shows. Again, not a weakness of mine. I'm pretty kept. I like I do pretty good on watching television. Um, but like I've heard people say, I really need to watch. I really need to watch that show. We actually are churning about keeping up with relevant pop culture things like that. Again, work it extends beyond schoolwork, right? The churning, the unfinished, the unfinished work in our lives, um, that, that, that's haunting us, that's that kind of holding out contentment but never fully giving it, um, that's preventing us from experiencing rest, right? There's a promise in that churning, right? If we churn a little bit longer, we're going to get there. And what I want to talk about is really in some ways the relationship between churning and freedom, because freedom and rest in Scripture go very much hand in hand, and what I want to talk about tonight is the two points you see there, what it means to experience freedom inside of work, like actually when you're working, and how the gospel unlocks this, and we'll talk about what the gospel is, but also how the gospel calls you to experience freedom outside of work. Because, right, we're anxious and churning inside of work, and the problem is sometimes we're like, I've got to stop, and you do, and we're still churning when we're outside of work, right? Right? Um, So let's talk about the first one, freedom, gospel freedom inside of work. Most famous commencement speech given at Stanford. Anybody? 2005? Steve Jobs. Y'all remember this? Um, I don't. I watch it on YouTube today. So that's how my memory is 12 hours long for this. So one of the many quotes that comes out of that, I remember that when I saw it, and I knew this was in the speech, that's why I went and listened to it today. As he said, don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. I love that, first of all, because it's inherently contradictory. If you take his advice, you're following Steve Jobs' thoughts. So first of all, you can't follow his advice if you're taking his advice. Anyways, that's another conversation. Isn't it? y'all get that? Or did I just people, gears just locked up right there. Sorry. <laughs> If someone says don't follow anyone's dogma, and you take their advice, you're following their dog. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Sorry, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> Here's my point: there's a lot of dogma at Stanford about work. Uh, there's there's a lot of dogma about work in our hearts. It's a lot of dogma about work in this culture. It's in the air we breathe. We create a culture together. We're all co participants in creating it. So it's not them, it's us together, right? It's not this place, it's us. We created it. And um, I think his advice is really good. And here's how you know if you're actually questioning the dogma on anything, whether it's work or anything, is when you question it, when you're really questioning the dogmas you've bought into, you feel a little afraid. Okay? And so to question the dogma at Stanford and maybe even in your own heart about work is going to feel a little scary. So here, what are some of the dogmas I've heard in seven years here? Um, you have to work, right? You have to work. That's a dogma. Um, success in your field is everything. You've got to be number one. Um, failure means you're worthless. this. Failure is not an option. That's a dogma. Um, mediocrity is the worst thing that could happen to me. Uh, you've got to be productive. You have to optimize your time. It's a dogma. That's a, that's a law, right? It's a rule. Uh, you've got to maximize your potential. Um, how about this one? I If I'm not busy, I feel guilty. Uh, if you're not winning, you should be ashamed. I can't afford to stop. People will think less of me. People will think I'm lazy. People will think that I'm stupid. If I don't study as much as everyone else, I'll fall behind. It's just what is necessary. Uh, a B will sink me. A C will destroy things. Right? But it extends beyond work, right? Again, work is more than simply this. Um, if I don't get a bid here, I'll never be happy. Uh, no one will love me because of how i look. Um. If I'm not Christian enough, God won't bless me or make me happy. Right? A lot of dogmas. Uh, Are you trapped by any of these? Here's how you can tell that you're trapped. You're unwilling to question them. What does it look like to question these dogmas? Questioning them means asking the question, why? Where did these things come from? Some of them have good roots. We're not denying that. Why do they have so much power? Why am I afraid to question them? Why am I afraid to not follow them? Why do they offer so much promise? Why do they feel pregnant with so much threat? Right, Embedded within them and underneath them, there's something driving the creation and the weight and the ominous threat and the promises of these dogmas. These dogmas are directing and guiding us on the path of a certain story. Here's how you recognize the dogmas that are driving you, controlling your life, making the decisions for you. Every place that you feel a should or i have to. All the shoulds you feel. I should study, I should lose weight, I should go here on this at this time, or i have to. Those are even more powerful, right? I have to. Where there are things where they feel like you don't have a decision to make, right? That's the place where these dogmas have a hold of us. And here's what happens to you internally. And I hope you do this with somebody. This is actually done best inside of a community, especially with friends. RUF is a place, small groups in relation with me, or their students here, staff is a place actually to do this. Here's what happens when you begin to discover the dogmas that are governing your life. You discover your real story. We have a projected public relations story that we're trying to believe and get other people to believe, that's not really who we are, right? We, we get that implicitly because we know on Facebook and on Twitter that's not who we really are or Instagram. There's the real us that's different. Questioning your dogmas is where you begin to discover your own story. Every should that you experience, every I have to that you feel, what that does is that starts to bring to light the story that you believe. So let's look at a should that you might feel, okay? Um, I shouldn't hang around later tonight. Uh, I should go back and finish my piece set. Okay, we're not value judging this right now, okay? So that can be totally legitimate. Here's the other thing. That's just one data point, right? One data point doesn't give you much of a trajectory or a compelling story. So there could be good reasons. Uh, I need to be a responsible student. You're legitimately behind on work for tomorrow. You got to go back to your room and do work. You need to get some sleep. You need to turn your work in tomorrow. Why? Because mastering the material is important. Because I'm engaged in exploring God's worlds so that I can work in it and craft beautiful things. Awesome. Right? Because getting a good grade is important. Okay. Non invalid. Maybe a little bit different. Maybe it's a little bit of both of those. Certainly it's probably a lot of different things. Right? But the degree to which all the reasons, when you start to pair together all the reasons why that should is dominating you and, and actually directing your activities. What happens is every should is actually crafting a different, is affecting you and shaping you. So why is the good grade important? So you have to keep asking these questions. Why is the good grade important? Well, it improves overall GPA. Why isn't that important? Well, it offers, opens doors to higher job profiles. Well, there's better opportunities. Why is that important? Well, what happens, here's what happens. If you begin to trace your whys, is for a while they're going up. Because it moves me to here, and it moves me to here, and it moves me to here, to these levels of achievement and success. And again, this is, not, this is not necessarily bad. After a while, if you're asking why as well, they stop going up and they start going in. And you start discovering the deeper needs that you're trying to meet with all of our decisions. This is not just about work either. This is about relationships. Why are you with the people you're with or not with the people you're not with, Right? And then what happens is you begin to get, the, when you start asking the whys and they start to go inside of you instead of simply up in the world, is I think we all get to different places and maybe we all have different vocabulary for this and these are big terms. Where what we're longing for is some sense of like either significance or security or being loved or having a sure identity. And so what happens is, in one sense, what we're doing is. You're beginning to explore, okay, the reason I need to be back at 945 is actually part of this narrative I have of like, if I get here, then when I get here, it's going to do something in here for me. And something as simple and as mundane as the decision of when you choose to go back later meets my newer go back later is maybe part of that narrative. There could be valid reasons. There could be invalid reasons. And here's the thing is each should and each have to as a data point. <clears throat> Start putting them together. And you're going to get a clearer trajectory of what your story is. And here's what your story is. Your story is your belief system. Right? A lot of people don't even know what they believe. Or we can't be honest about why certain shoulds and certain have-tos completely govern our time or decision-making. And we're unwilling to question our dogma. And here's the question. Here, here's really the question if you embark on that process. Is your story or the belief system that's, gov- that's created these dogmas and governing your actions, right? Your should-tos and your have-tos. Is this the fundamental dynamic of that belief system? Is it all about conditional promises? Here's what I mean. If you do the right things, you will get the happy stuff. In that order... Do the right things, socially, professionally, emotionally, whatever it is, religiously. Then you'll get the happy stuff. Whatever it is, wealth, achievement, a sense of fulfillment, right? A Tesla, that's what I want. And a lake house, that's what I want, right? It can be anything. Um, is that the dynamic of your story? Do the work, do the right work. Might even be religious. Read your Bible more, pray more. Then you'll get the happy stuff and God will love you. Do the right work, study more, then you'll get the happy stuff. High-profile job, startup that takes off, whatever it is. If you're working for security, significance, contentment, peace, whatever it is is your thing that will make life for you. Do the work, get the thing. Implicit behind that, of course, is the threat. Fail to do the work, you don't get the thing. Right? Work first, then you earn it. Here's what the, the word the Bible uses, that Paul uses Describe a life lived that way. And he actually confronts people that live that way. He calls it slavery. Because a slave cannot afford to say no. That's what a slave is. Someone who can't say no. Because circumstances outside of them say you have to. Because you feel like circumstances outside of you say you have to. And Paul says to Christians at the church of Galatia, he says, if you're a Christian, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And what he's talking about is the slavery of self-justification. That's what it's called. The slavery of living a life in that dynamic. Do the work, good enough, and then you'll get the happy thing. Whatever your happy thing is. And he says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Jesus actually sets you free. It's actually for freedom that Jesus did everything that he did. A lot of people don't think or know that. And a word about freedom, I said this maybe last week or two weeks ago, freedom is not the absence of constraint. That's not what freedom is. No one argues for that. When people rightly... rightly address unjust constraints. What they long for is not a world with no constraints. What they long for is the right constraints in place, not the absence of constraints. But that's not what freedom is. When Paul talks about freedom, he's saying this is the freedom we want, the freedom from having to justify ourselves. And that's the thing that we're enslaved to. It's why the dogmas are scary to stand up against. Because we think if we don't follow them, if we don't acquit ourselves well in this world, in this context, whether it's professional, academic, social, or even religious, then it all goes bad. That's the story behind our story behind our story. That's the story underneath our dogmas, right? That's the work that we're actually asking our work to do for us. It's to justify us. Later in the same speech, Jobs actually says, Don't let the noise of other opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. Then they somehow already know what you truly want to become. We're so busy trying to fill ourselves and justify ourselves with our work that we failed to hear actually our own inner voice that God even gave us. That what we really, here's what you long for you don't long for success, you long for what you feel success will give you. We don't long for achievement. We long for what achievement will give us. And so in Colossians, when Paul says, whatever you do, don't work for self-justification, don't work for achievement, don't work for success. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He is talking about going about your work in a fundamentally different way for totally different reasons. He's saying that the governing principle is not create profit, add value, Achieve, be successful. None of, those, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But he's saying the supreme governing principle, those things always take us down bad paths when they're supreme governing principle. He's saying the supreme governing principle that dictates how you work will actually be gratitude. You'll work out of gratitude with thankfulness all the time driving you. It's a different way to work, isn't it? An honor for God. Liking Him a lot will drive you all the time. That's what Paul's commending. Liking God a lot. Now, why? Paul, in this context, is talking to people who already know that they have an inheritance in Christ. What does that mean? He's actually showing us how to take the gospel into our work. So, remember the self-justification narrative? Do the right things and get the happy stuff. This is not the story of God's love for you. This is not the story of the Bible. This is not the story of Jesus. It is not do the right things and God will give you the happy stuff. And the Bible overwhelmingly preaches against that from the first page to the end. The gospel is not instructions on what you have to do to get the happy things from God, to be loved or to be justified. The gospel, the word, actually means, in the Greek, the gospel means good news. It's the good news of what God does for you. And then you actually live from that. See, we live an instruction-driven life. Do the right things, get the right instructions, and do the right things, then you get the happy things. The gospel is totally different. It says... It's good news, not good instructions. It says, here's the good news about what God has done for you in Christ. Now, go live from that good news. Don't live to earn the good news. To live in Christ means to live from what has been done for you. Instead of living from what must I do so that I can finally have it. The gospel is actually a complete reversal of the way we naturally go through life. This is the, address, the slavery that Paul is addressing because it says, you are justified in Jesus. Paul is saying that the eternal inheritance of God's love is already yours in Jesus because inheritance is something children get. They don't work for. They receive it from their parents because they love them. Now, go and work for totally different and new reasons. Work from a position of being loved instead of working for love. Work actually from a position of happiness instead of for happiness. Work from a position of knowing you're justified instead of working for your justification. What does it mean to be justified in Jesus? It means this, that everything about us that disqualifies us from being loved by God is taken away by Jesus. That's what He did at the cross He who knew no sin became our sin. That's what that phrase means. That's what it means. But it also means this, that everything that qualifies you for God's love, the Bible calls that word righteousness, is given to you in Jesus. He is your righteousness, Paul continues, so that we might have the righteousness of God. That is the heart of the freedom that our inner voice, everyone's inner voice, is crying for in all of our endeavors Freedom means you no longer have to prove yourself. You no longer labor to justify yourself. You no longer do the right things to get the happy stuff. So what does it mean to take that new thing? Because Jesus gives me the happy stuff freely, I'm going to go and do the right things out of love. What does it mean to take that gospel dynamic into our work? It means that now in Christ you're motivated not by fear, you're motivated not by the need for self-justification, you're motivated not by or all the dogmas. But you actually work from love and you work with gratitude. Those are the two big things happening in your heart and your soul and your mind as you work. It's like God is so good and I am so grateful. And that drives you through your CS work. Instead of I have to get an A on this. Oh my gosh, I'm terrified. I'm going to kill myself and everyone else, right? Especially the people that are killing it with A pluses. You're never wondering anymore about your security or if your peace or your identity are in the balance. Your inheritance is secure in Jesus because he did the good work. And you think, here's what we all think, myself included all the time, is you know what? Fear and competitiveness are really good motivators and I actually think they can get me really far. We actually all believe that to a large degree. I I actually, we all think, I think I might be more successful if I live in fear and let fear drive me than I could be if I'm just motivated by something like love and gratitude. That's a lie. That's the voice of fear. And that should make you sad. Makes me sad that I believe that. Because knowing, knowing objectively and subjectively. In other words, being able to see something and also being able to feel something that confirms that you are loved fully all the way through is the best thing in the world. This affects and restores your character and your virtue within your work you no longer work to win but you actually work to honor the god who loves you so you're actually cri- you're actually critical and thoughtful about what work you're doing and ha- and whether or not it's helping people or harming people or helping systems or harming systems you don't no longer see coworkers customers clients bosses employees as enemies or competitors but actually other people made in god's image for whom you seek their well-being it means that you're actually willing to embrace some of the costly ways that choosing virtue and choosing goodness, and choosing justice, and choosing truth in your work. Those of you who are interested in going into the financial sector or going into legal practice, this is going to be really challenging. And you might find that you have to make sacrifices to be the one who says, this is not good, or this is not just, or this is not right, or this is abusive of people in need. But here's the thing, that might cost you, and you might have to make sacrifices if you stand on these kinds of things, but love always makes sacrifices worth it. If you have something worthy of love and someone worthy of love, the sacrifices are the best part of love. The sacrifices you make are the best parts of love. Here's what else it means. It means you can find contentment in all kinds of work across all kinds of levels of different work because your passion is increasingly for the Savior who loves you And working to honor Him and working in gratitude for Him, and that makes all kinds of work worthwhile. I've said this before. The last two weeks, it's not life is not nearly as much about the specific work you end up finding yourself in as it is about who you work for. And I don't mean your boss. I mean who you seek to serve with your work. Here's what I mean. In a couple of weeks, and if you don't have spring break plans, I hope you'll come with us. Come and talk to me afterwards. We have one or two or three more spots. We're going to go to Yakima, the Yakima Reservation in Central Washington for spring break and the people who've gone ask them this and maybe you've experienced this in other settings. We will do very menial work there. We'll paint houses and put roofs on houses. This is work that is beneath all of y'all's ability, right? You have incredible capability beyond that. But here's the thing, everybody that comes back will tell you it's far more rewarding work than anything they've done here. Here's why. Because in that moment you're getting to taste the power and the delight of work done in love. And work done in love is so much more fun than the work that you like. The way the gospel frees you inside of work is that the Jesus, his justifying work at the cross, frees you from asking work to justify you. And then you're rewired, you're rewired as a person, you're no longer working in fear and anxiety. But you're working as someone who's driven by gratitude and joy. That's fun work. Let's talk about gospel freedom outside of work really quickly. There's still more freedom to be found when we apply the gospel to work. When we look at that commandment in Deuteronomy 5, I want you to notice just one verse in it, verse 15 because he roots that command in a specific redemptive historical moment. Something happened in, in Israel's history that's very defining for them. He says, Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, keep the Sabbath day. So at Mount Sinai, the call to Sabbath is actually connected with their deliverance from actual slavery. A slave is someone who has no holidays or no sick days or no vacation days, who can't choose to stop, is someone who feels like there's an external pressure to work that I cannot stand up to. It's not me. It's circumstances outside of me that compel me to continue to work. I would if I could, but I don't have a choice in the matter. That's the mentality of a slave. That's the life of a slave. And what God says here is, rest is how you remember you're not a slave. Rest is actually how you demonstrate that you're not a slave. Rest is how you display and consequently enjoy your freedom as one who is not a slave. Rest is not saying, I can rest, but I can't afford to right now. That's not it. That's not what it's talking about. That's the language of slavery. Sabbath rest is remembering, practicing, and enjoying the freedom you have in Christ by laying down your work. Precisely, maybe exactly when you think you can't afford to. Maybe that might be the most important time to do it. In Christ, you're no longer slaves to sin, to self justification. Now, hang on to that point for a moment. Let's look at another way that, that Sabbath is talked about here in the creation account. When we read the creation account, the text tells us the heavens and the earth were finished. This is the end of the creation story. All the hosts of them, God had done work for six days. On the seventh day, God rested. From all His work that He had done, God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done. So here we see, God's given a creational pattern to relationship with work and rest, and it's grounded in His work and rest. He worked for six days, and seventh day He made holy. Now here's what I want you to think about the word holy. A lot of times what we think is, we think, oh, holy means religious. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean you do secular things for six days and you do religious things for one day. And in fact, in week one, we made the case and examined the spirituality of all good work. What holy means is holy means set apart or different. So what it's talking about is there's one day that's really different from all the others with regard to your work. What I want to look at for a sec, very briefly, is God's seventh day and how He rested and how His seventh day was very different from the other six days. And this is the biblical conception of Sabbath rest. Because rest is not simply an activity, Uh, it's, it's not simply leisure activities. Those are good things. You should schedule those into your time as well. But that's not what we're talking about. When God rests, when does He rest? He rests when the work is finished. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested. What we see Him do, if we had read earlier the last verses of Genesis 1 immediately preceding this, what we would see Him do is look at His finished work and enjoy it. And appraise it and say it's very good. And rest is him looking at his work and saying, that's good, I'm done. Now let's put the two pieces together, the bit about slavery and the bit about the work done. Why is it so hard for us to feel free to stop? I mean, even the concept of stopping or the prospect of stopping, you're like, oh, that's a risk. Why is it so hard to feel free to stop? It's because we don't feel Or sense what God senses or feels at the end of His creation week, which is the work is done. Do you feel like the work is done? Do you ever feel like, do any of us ever feel like the work is done? Remember, work is more than school. It's what we're endeavoring to make of the world and of ourselves. Do you feel as if you can or one day will be able to step back and look at the body of work that is your life and say... I'm done. I finished. Finally, I'm Christian enough. Finally, I'm loving enough. Finally, I'm not selfish anymore. Finally, I'm thin enough. Finally, I'm socially content. Finally, I'm successful enough. I got the job. I got the house. I got the family. I got the promotion, the wealth, the impact, the work. I'm finished. The most dangerous lie that you can believe is that you are so close and if you work a little bit more, you'll be done. The reason we can't rest is because we don't have anything to look at and say, I'm finished. And that is actually why we have to enter into Sabbath rest. Because you do have something to look at and say, it's finished. Because when Jesus went to the cross in his work of justifying you and restoring you and forgiving you and lavishing his love on you and taking away your shame and taking away your guilt and saying to you, right, sacrifice is the way we say to each other, you are the most significant thing to me. You are secure, my love. Your identity is loved by God. These are all things we learn from looking at Jesus on the cross. What did he say In his last words at the cross, he was talking to you and he said, it's finished. He finished it for you. Exodus 31 says we keep the Sabbath to remember the covenant, to remember God's promise to you that he promised to and he did finish the work. You do not have to justify yourself. This is why Leviticus 23, when it talks about the Sabbath, it says, Hey, and on the Sabbath, gather in a sacred assembly with those who also rest in God's promises. Church is not a religious performance that you go to to make God happy. It's when a lot of people who are trying to remember together, because it's so easy to forget, God's love demonstrated us in the work of Jesus that it is done. Because you can't convince yourself of it by yourself in your dorm room with your Bible very well at all. I've tried, you've tried, we can't. We need each other. Because it is hard to believe the work is finished. In Mark 2, Jesus says, the Sabbath is not a rule that you have to like serve. It's a gift of God for you and to you. It's a gift to be enjoyed. Because rightly enjoyed, it's a celebration of remembering who we are in Jesus. Because those other six days, for so many other reasons, we almost forget every time. And for this reason, Sabbath rest is far more than not doing work. It means resting from all the things that we look to for identity. It could mean a lot more than resting from work. It might look like resting from social media. It might look like being free from the news or being free from the gym or being free from the place of slavery that you find yourself going back to over and over and over again for value and for life and for significance and security to go and do more unfinished work. Sabbath is the concrete, real world, physical act of setting everything else aside for one day in seven and looking to Jesus to see the work is done. And when it costs you study time and you pull a C on that midterm, you weren't supposed to go like, I hate religious rules. You're supposed to go, I know who I am. I am loved by God in Christ. I'm the recipient of His grace. I'm not that C. I'm not that D. And its consequences can't define me. It's the best C I ever got. It is my C of rebellion against the dogmas of this place. The way free people will reject the dogmas of Stanford is that you will set aside your undone work and look to the finished work of Christ. And there, you will experience the freedom you're longing for in all of your work. It's in Jesus. Let's pray.